BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, yesterday was a, seems to have been a fairly pivotal day in this long, I don't know whether you want to call it a long march or just this long drama over the course of the year for the president's agenda. Uh, and here we're talking specifically about, you know, it, it, it's, it's moved through so many different names, hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, reconciliation, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yesterday, and I, I did a post about this yesterday because uh, yesterday afternoon, because over the course of the day, there were a series of reports saying seemingly pretty definitively, okay, this part of the package, that's done. Like not cut, it's out. It's not going to be there at all. One of the things was uh, uh, free community college. You know, one of the one of the basic parts of the thing not cut back. It's out. It's out of the plan. And then there were other reports. Well, okay, uh, you know, child tax credit. We thought it was going to be this. Actually, it's going to be pulled back. It's not going to be as many years. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. There's going to be means testing. And through that, and this is just kind of my bias because to me the climate parts of this are kind of sui generis. Like everything's important, but, you know, <laughs> we, we can wait a few decades for social democracy, right? We can't wait a few decades to save the climate. And there's been some pretty hard news on the climate front too. And that that's still kind of up in the air. But in any case, it seemed like there was a lot of pretty tough news coming out. Things just being dropped and and, and the reports with a level of authority and specificness that were very different from what we've heard over recent months where we're kind of reading the tea leaves about something Joe Manchin said in an elevator or something like that. I believe one of the, or at least a number of the reports yesterday stemmed from what President Biden told uh, congressional Democrats in a series of meetings where he said, hey, that's out. Just letting you know that's done. So a lot of gnashing of teeth a lot of a lot of upset people but i had a very different reaction to this this seemed like some of the best news i'd heard i don't know if it's days or weeks or months not because i don't think those programs are important they're all important but the news we were hearing yesterday were that was clearly coming out of a real negotiation when you've got the principles down to specifics and saying okay that's in that's out Here's the, here's the, you know, here's the, here's the number level, stuff like that. 
And that is a really big deal. And that is a very big deal for the country. It's a very big deal for the White House. It's a very big deal for anybody who cares about, you know, saving the country. Uh, because the real, and, and my, I don't want to seem blasé about, you know, various uh, programs being cut or being ditched or stuff like that. But my take on this is informed, you know, I've already discounted that. I, I've already kind of absorbed the fact that it's not going to be $3.5 trillion. It's going to be hopefully somewhere in the neighborhood of two. And that means cutting a lot of stuff. That's just, that's just the reality. And the real danger that I think we have seen over the last two or three weeks is not that this or that thing will be cut. It's that the whole thing is just going to implode and nothing is going to happen at all. And, and what we have seen over the last, you know, one of the things, I think I wrote a post about this yesterday or the day before that, uh, Rep Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus, uh, gave an interview a couple days ago where she said, hey, you know, that, that end of October deadline, you know, deadlines are meant to be broken. There's no rush. And Joe Manchin had a different comment where he basically said, yeah, totally unrealistic to think we're going to get this done by the end of the month. Now, everybody's got their interests in not putting themselves under time pressure and all that kind of stuff. But that's not true. It's urgent. It's really urgent. And you can say, why is it urgent? Blah, 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 blah. There are certain political realities that time sometimes is working for you and other times is working against you. Here, time is working against the Democrats in a big way. And I have been very concerned because, you know, I've seen it happen before. We talk a lot about 2009 and 2010 with Obamacare. There's something very different back in 1993 and 1994. President Clinton got his big tax bill, raised taxes on upper income earners. They got that. They got it by, by one vote. And the one vote, the, 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 the woman who cast what was seen as kind of the one vote. She lost her seat in 94 because, you know, with everybody else who lost their seats. But there was another big thing that people oddly kind of forget about, healthcare. They were going to reform the whole healthcare system. And it was a whole big deal. You had, you had uh, the first lady, Hillary Clinton, with her task force. And you had all the kind of the, you know, the best and the brightest coming up with the plan. And, and, and it was, you know, too big to fail. And he was staking his presidency on it. And it just kind of died in the Senate. It never even came to a vote. It just died. And that was it. And I have been increasingly concerned about something like that happening. But now it seems like that's not going to happen. It seems like they are, you know, we've gone now. And, and my colleague, my co-host and colleague Kate is going to tell us more about this in a moment. They've gone now from thinking like, yeah, forget about end of the month. We're not putting, you know, we don't know when this is going to be done to maybe it's going to be done this week. It seems like the momentum is, is there now. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about those specifics. And not long before we started recording the podcast this afternoon, I got a, I got a, I got uh, pinged by a friend of mine uh, who, uh, let's say, has a, has a kind of, you know, has a pretty good line into uh, what's happening among Republicans up on Capitol Hill. And this confirmed some other things I heard up there from yesterday too, which is congressional Republicans, especially House Republicans, were looking at what was happening yesterday and thinking, oh, fuck. All right. This is not, this is not going well for us now. It's, it's something has changed. And something has changed is that things seem to be kind of lining up. 
Like they're actually negotiating now and it seems like they're going to put this together pretty quickly. And that's not good for us Republicans. Um, you know, Democrats get very into based, you know, this, 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 this line that uh, Mitch McConnell had back in, what is it, 2009 or 2010? You know, I want the president to fail. Mitch McConnell's terrible. He's, he's only a toxic president's presence in our politics. But opposition parties always want the in-party to fail. They don't want them to destroy the country, but that's kind of how it works. But in any case, that was sort of one of my, uh, you know, proof in the pudding is in the eating indicators of what was happening yesterday that Republicans sensed it because they were really hoping and I was really fearing that this was, the whole thing was just going to come apart and then nothing happens. And then you not only get nothing. But you also have a democratic coalition that like basically blows apart. You have everybody who's has an open mind about future elections saying, all right, it doesn't matter what the Democrats say. They just they're they can't do anything. So who cares? Needless to say, those are all pretty bad. Those are all pretty bad outcomes. So, uh, you know, it, it, and, and, and it's funny, you know, there's uh, I think yesterday morning I had a post where I basically, I think it was, it was, I, I said something like, yeah, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea whether it's going to work. It was, it was, I, you know, I had kind of, uh, I did not like the signs that I was, that I was seeing. So, uh, we seem to have some movement in a different direction, but before we get the real information, not just my jabbering real information from Kate, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's cold brew ice coffee. While you're packing up the kids, dogs and sweaters for your annual visit to your in-laws, don't forget to pack a Grady's cold brew kit because without proper planning, drinking a single sip from your mother-in-law's moldy coffee pot will be even harder on your stomach than watching OANN over family dinner. This is really kind of like <laughs> subject, you know, subject, uh, it's almost like, it's almost, uh, what is it, you know, integrated content or whatever, mm. whatever it is. Luckily, the Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy to drink gel- delicious coffee on the go. Just toss in some bean bags and water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll have smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right, awesome stuff. So, Kate, what, g- give us some, give us some details. What you mentioned to me before we started kind of just like the mood of the people up there changed markedly mm-hmm. over the course of the day. What was the driver? So, you know, I got there in the morning and Democratic senators were very grouchy, you know, very uh, kind of disinclined to talk to the press, kind of snappish. And then they went in for their weekly caucus lunch where they all kind of gather in a room and eat these meals that look like they're 8 trillion calories. And, you know, they kind of meet about stuff. They they powwow about stuff. And so they, it's not just buffet. It's like a sit down. Right. A sit down meal. Interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, well, the food's laid out in a buffet. But yeah, they have like, you know, tables in there and there are caterers and stuff like that. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got um, it. And so they stream out and every single one is like, Oh, I'm feeling more optimistic than I have in months. You know, I feel very confident that we can get a a deal pulled together by the end of this week. And it was like doom and gloom to people saying it was the best meeting they'd had all year, that they felt great, they felt re-energized. And it turns out, I think a big part of it was because Manchin was there 
He addressed the caucus and apparently stayed until the end to hear out everyone's concerns and basically just conveyed to them, like, I'm on board to come to an agreement with leadership with the White House by the end of this week. And I think people were just so relieved (laughs) to know that kind of this huge obstacle was. And and so and so basically we interpret that as, you know, not I'm going to agree to three point five trillion. Right. It's it's going to come down. You've heard all my lines and stuff, but I am behind getting to a deal. Like right. I'm not, and and I will say this that and and I'm curious, and I would I I would imagine that there's something similar among the other Democratic senators, even though obviously they know much more than I do. That, and we have had some of these conversations, Kate. That there's been this question of like, what does he want? Right. Because when he's saying, hey, there's no rush. Like November, December, that's fine. Like, dude, it's not fine. So like, and you're not stupid. So, so are you trying to make this not happen? Right. Like, so, so that must have, as, as you suggest, come to them as quite reassuring. Well, and, you know, if you think about these two options they're kind of faced with now, it's either a mansion who won't engage, who won't negotiate, who's totally content to maybe do this in 2022, maybe do it never at all, or a mansion that's going to inflict painful cuts and make make people upset. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're, he's insisting on kind of chopping out portions of this that are very, very important to people. But with the thrust of coming together to a deal and actually having legislation to pass. And that just hasn't been a certainty in the past few weeks. You know, one thing that surprised me in particular was Brian Schatz on his way out of the meeting. He's a climate hawk. We've had him here for TPM events before. Um, You know, he's younger than the rest of the caucus, but still kind of... you know, not he's very involved, kind of like in uh, a key member, I would say. Um, and he said coming out of it, he's was the most optimistic he's been for several months that they'll have a big, bold climate bill, which is kind of shocking considering the news that we've heard this week that Manchin is killing the clean electricity performance program altogether, which was the linchpin of the whole climate plan. And then he kicked the carbon tax to the curb yesterday, which was kind of being envisioned as being the backup plan for that. Now, can you tell us Mm -hmm. um, what is that plan? Like, what is it? What what is, you know, we hear it's the linchpin. It's this, Mm -hmm. it's the it's the thing that's basically going to get get utilities to switch to to, to mm-hmm. renewables. But what is it? Can you describe it's it briefly? Basically, just a series of monetary sticks and carrots to get utilities to up the percentage of their electricity that they're getting from renewable sources per year. So, and Manji keeps saying, "Why would we pay them for something they're doing already?" And it's they are doing it already just because renewables are already becoming so much cheaper than dirtier sources of energy. But almost none of them are doing it at the rate that this program kind of would have pushed them to do. And so I've mm -hmm. I've heard Manchin, as you just said, sort of uh, poo poo this as, oh, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay a lot of money to to utilities, you know, for what they're already doing. Now, that's obviously kind of, you know, he's he's he's, uh, you know, kind of smartly hitting a number of buzzwords, but. Presumably, he doesn't want to do this because it speeds things up and he doesn't want to speed things up that exactly. much. Exactly. Yep. So is there now I, I've heard, I think in one of our earlier conversations, you said that one of the issues with, um, you know, you can come at this by like tax credits and 
subsidies and stuff like that. But I guess the idea is that those are too easy to kind of give and take away mm-hmm. and you don't get industry buy-in exactly. where utilities say, hey, this is the reality for the next 20 years. So let's invest against that reality as opposed to like, maybe this will be gone in 2023 or 2025. So we're not going to stick our heads out. So is do we know what the basis of of, of Schott's optimism is? Well, I asked him uh, just being like, that is a surprising response to me, you know, kind of based on what we've heard today. Um, and I said, where'd you get your optimism? And he said, a lot of private conversations and then kind of got on the subway and sped away. So what I took from that is he got some kind of promise from my my guess. I don't know this for sure. My guess is that he got some kind of agreement from Manchin to allow something. And my kind of best guess as what we're going to see at this point is a patchwork of these tax credits, whatever programs Democrats can essentially smuggle by Manchin before he shuts it down. And then I think we're going to start seeing and we already have started yesterday, but we're going to start seeing a lot of talk, I think, about what the Biden administration can do unilaterally and through regulatory efforts. Um, So, you know, I think that's what it's going to end up being just because they're kind of out of like big heavyweight programs that could fill the gap that the CEPP was supposed to fill. Um, Unless you're talking about something like, you know, shots kind of tossed out in regards to what other states have done. He said um, a renewable portfolio standard or a cap and trade program. And we'll probably all remember it was Joe Manchin who filmed a campaign ad shooting the cap and trade bill. Uh, So that doesn't seem like he'd be particularly open to it. Um, Yeah, I... I it, it, it's kind of, it's funny. It's kind of hard for me. One of the things I remember from very early this year when when uh, the Biden presidency was just off, you know, just starting um, the, you know, around the time he put out the sort of his outline proposals. And I believe it was the, it was the union head of the United Mine Workers mm-hmm. actually set, you know, put out a statement saying, you know, we're on board, which is pretty shocking, right? Because we're on board with the climate stuff. Now, he wasn't, it was more kind of like we can be on board. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, saying categorically. What I understood that guy to be saying was basically, look, if you, they talk about this stuff about it, what is a just transition? Mm. Basically, the idea is, he seemed to be saying, look, we know that coal is going away. We will be part of that process if you provide support and guarantees that the people in the industry won't won't absorb that all themselves. And that is, you know, that is a very reasonable thing. Um, you know, we we uh, for the better part of a century, the US got most of its electricity from coal and everybody thought that was fine. And there were people who dug it out of the ground and did this and did that. And then suddenly we realized it's not fine. And we are trying to make this collective national decision to stop using coal. Well, the pain should be spread around. It shouldn't fall just on. I mean, now it's ridiculous how few miners there are. And that's mainly not because we're using less coal. It's because of automation and stuff like that. In any case, I have it's a little hard for me to get my head around. You know, there's been a lot of talk that mansion has a coal business, basically. I, mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it does. It's not, I don't think he has mines. It's, you know, there's a million companies that are involved in processing and selling and whatever. He's in the coal business. It's a little hard for me to see how anybody involved in the coal business cannot see that coal is on the way out. There's just no question about that. The question is how fast it happens. 
Um, and those of us who care a lot about climate, it, it needs to happen like instantly, like it has to happen super, super fast. But you can't not see that coal is on the way out. So I'm, I have a sort of a disconnect when I, when I try to get a sense of what is someone who's trying to, you know, defend the coal business thinking exactly. What's, you know, what is their plan? I guess their plan is just, if, I mean, look, if that's where you make your money and that's more important to you than climate, you want to do, you know, go as long as you can, just more time. Right. But still I mean, a little hard for me to get my head around. And that's basically what his argument amounted to. The only reason he said he was against the CEPP is because utilities are doing it already albeit at a slower pace. So, I mean, that basically was his argument. It wasn't even like, oh, we, you know, we can't abandon coal workers or uh, we can't let coal die out. It was just, he has no interest in facilitating that transition to renewables, despite, um, you know, the the plethora of uh, very demonstrable effects it's having on the planet. And the fact that when Democrats kind of bundled these climate plans, they very much kind of kept front of mind the people like the the remaining coal miners or people who kind of had their livelihood staked on fossil fuels. And that's why they included things like, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps, job training stuff. I mean, a big underlying promise of the CEPP was that it'll spark this huge growth in renewable production because that's what's going to become you know, monetarily advantageous. So that's going to be this boom in green jobs. And the idea being like, you can kind of take the fossil fuel workers and shift them into, you know, greener, greener pastures kind of thing. Right, right, right. He killed it dead after, you know, in in this bit of a weird way. And I I guess now it's kind of a typical mansion way. But for months, Tina Smith, the, the senator from Minnesota who kind of crafted this reconciliation friendly CEPP, has been briefing Manchin kind of assiduously, like making sure that he's on board and that she's not doing all this work for nothing. Mm -hmm. And then she, you know, she says, well, he just told me he's not going to support it. So it's like they did all this work to kind of try to make it Manchin friendly. And then I spoke with some experts who have been talking to uh, people on the Hill in these 11th hour attempts to make the policy itself more Manchin friendly by, uh, you know, tweaking some things that allows more fossil fuel entities to kind of stay in the game stuff like Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. but uh, he just it's kind of like he it is with a lot of stuff he was for it until all of a sudden he wasn't or he was open to it until all of a sudden he wasn't even when none of the details have really changed very much yeah i think that this is this is uh this is why the whole idea that was being pushed by you know, there was that article in Punchbowl earlier this week Mm. that he's hey he's been 100 clear you just weren't listening that's not that's not true. I mean, he's he's kind of all over the place all the time. And I suspect now we can't, it's possible Senator Smith had her own level of wishful thinking there. Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously didn't endorse it. Um, and, you know, if you really want it to happen, you endorse it. He keeps his options open. And, and I still think that a lot of the bad news here is tied to the fact that President Biden has been on the ropes politically since the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. And one of the basic lessons I have always absorbed about politics is all politics is unitary. All, all power is unitary. You can't be like taking it on the chin on the domestic front and you're really powerful on the foreign front or, you know, it, it's all one thing. The bad pictures coming out of Afghanistan should not have anything to do with the size of a climate bill we're going to have. 
but it does, but it does. And, um, you know, he keeps his options open and that, that just sucks. But that is the kind of, uh, that, that's just the reality that we are in, uh, the way things uh, came together in the last election. Democrats needed everybody. And that's just uh, how it came out. Now there's one, there's one other person we're not talking about here that we mentioned before we started. So let's get into that. What is, what's, what's with the person whose name we haven't mentioned yet? So it's funny. And as Josh and I were discussing before we went on air, Cinema was not at the Democratic lunch, this lunch that gave everybody, you know, great hope and optimism. Was she not in Washington? Or she just blew no, off the lunch? We had, we I don't think know. she just blew off the lunch. I think she's in Washington. I'm not 100% sure, though. There is a chance that she's been doing her meetings with Biden on the phone. I thought she was in person, though. But she wasn't at the lunch. And just, and I apologize mm-hmm. for keeping her up, no, but no. just for our, for our listeners, basically everybody goes to those, right? I mean, not not. 100% always, but it's not like 10 people show up. It's kind of like uh, people go to those, right? Yeah. And leadership sometimes does kind of like put a thumb on the scale, be like, it'd be great if people could come to this one. Though, I mean, in the past, both cinema and mansion sometimes have skipped them when we've been kind of in the midst of what the heck do they want? How do we move on right, these negotiations? Right, right. Well, I guess that in a, in a way that makes sense. If they're trying to kind of not tell everybody why show up when you're going to get... right. Pigeonholed. Exactly. In any case, go ahead. But right, she wasn't there, which I think is so fascinating that we got the reaction we got coming out of this lunch, considering that she wasn't there. No one seems to have heard from her if she's kind of on board with this by the week's end goal. Um, And I think in some ways that kind of lends credence to this theory that you and I, Josh, have been talking about for ages. I mean, we started talking about it with the filibuster back in January, but the idea being that if push comes to shove, can Kirsten Cinema is she willing to be the woman alone on a branch? If Manchin comes into the fold, will she be kind of the one irritant that in this case stalls out the entire agenda for the foreseeable future? And it, I think it's really interesting that at least the rest of the Democratic senators do not seem to think that she has that wherewithal. It's funny. There's so many things that have happened over the last uh, couple months that have made me question that theory. Mm-hmm. Just her her constant provocations is is how I would put it. That have have made me wonder, like, is she not only willing to blow this up, maybe she wants to blow it up Mm -hmm. and why that would be is is pretty hard to fathom. And, you know, I put nothing past her, but I I mean, hard to fathom, even in just pure self-interest terms. Like, why would she want to do that? Um, But that is a what you just described is certainly a pretty big data point. In favor of our theory, as as you enunciated it, that Mansion cuts a deal, she's going to fold. She just does not have the wherewithal to stand on her own. And and uh, frankly, I think that's because she's just a huge phony. I think she is just a huge phony. And well, there's all sorts of other bad things I think about her, but for relevant relevant to this uh, uh, conversation, I just yeah, I, I I think she'll fold, and it's good that they seem to think she'll fold too. Yeah. I guess I mean, we'll see. I think frustrations with her are quite high. 
not least because a lot of them have relationships with Manchin, even if they're like really pissed off at what he's doing right now. Right. And I think it just gives them a bit of a better understanding of who he is, why he thinks that this, what he's doing is bipartisanship or centrism or whatever. But with cinema, it's funny because you'll kind of ask senators, they hate getting this question, but they obviously get it all the time. It'll be like, what do you think about X? And then the follow-up has to be, okay, cool, our mansion and cinema on board. And they get really annoyed at that. But that's kind of the whole ball game here. Yeah, And they yeah. often kind of slip things in about how oh, I've known Joe for years. He, he never lets the party down when it counts, blah, 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 stuff like that. But right. most of them kind of add as a rejoinder, I don't know cinema that I don't know Senator cinema that well. You know, I, I haven't had much of a personal relationship with her. So I think to some degree, there is like, as much as we are kind of in the dark about her motives and why she does stuff, I think that's pretty common among the caucus. And then that's only been inflamed by what you can only really describe as her arrogance kind of going through those procedures. I mean, willing to be the one of the only people who's stopping pretty much the rest of the caucus from doing what it wants. But then she kind of Per a reported quote, I forget what outlet it was in, she told some Democratic senator, well, I, I don't I haven't told Schumer and Pelosi what I want. I'm not going to tell you. The White House knows, which is kind of like, why? <laughs> yeah, that, that that's that, that was something that she said a couple versions of that kind of like, I don't have to tell you or I don't have to tell the lead. And, and that's kind of like that's that's just weird mm -hmm. in in the context of congressional politics. Yep. Like, like, you know, look, everybody, we live in a period when parties are not particularly strong. People get elected mostly on their own. They, you know, they kind of don't owe anybody anything. You know, they don't owe you their vote, but they owe you telling, telling you what, what's up. Like, what is the, you know, it, 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 this kind of, she seems to have this theory of kind of like strategic ambiguity. Like, yep. I'm going to keep you all uh, in, 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 in the dark. And it's funny because if, if I'm remembering right, I believe Joe Manchin was elected in 2012 and Cinema uh, was elected in, in 2018. Mm -hmm. Now, so that means she has not been there for very long. On the other hand, Joe Manchin hasn't been there for that long. It's, that's another six years. Um, but this is, there's, you know, kind of reporting I've been doing in the background about her uh, as this sort of mystery about what her deal is has become more central to our politics. And, you know, you always describe how she just doesn't talk to reporters. Mm -hmm. Like they walk around, she just does not talk to reporters. And that is, that's not the norm. Everybody talks to reporters. Some talk more or less, but like... Super and, weird. And, and Honestly, just, I think the last senator who did it was Martha McSally, who obviously lost her reelection. Well, maybe it's but. in the water, right? In, <laughs> in Arizona or the lack of water as the case may be. Um, but what I have understood from talking to people, you know, people who've worked with her over the years, that not talking to press is mirrored by not talking to colleagues or not talking to colleagues in the way that many senators do, where you're all buds and you're mm -hmm. kind of all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, she has... Uh, sort of made a name for herself of, of not talking to anybody except Republicans. Big into talking to Republicans. And that's a whole, there is, you cannot talk to people who have worked with her or around her or known her over the last 20 years without picking up that this is someone who is very closed, does not, keeps everybody kind of in the dark and is, keeps everybody at a distance. Um, and there's some kind of weird interpersonal stuff that is is 
the the one thing the one thing that's kind of a mystery is she she seems to have a pretty difficult time sustaining uh, uh, working relationships with other people. Um, and one of the big things over the course of this last year is she has, there's all sorts of people who are giving her lots of money in her house runs and what was a pretty big Senate run that she, that she won. And when though, and in the spring, those people started calling her and saying, Hey, what, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Like what's going on here? And she basically just hasn't returned any of their calls. And a lot of those people have turned against her now. So she's a, a kind of a strange character. And the only thing that um, is mystifying to me is if I'm saying this is someone who has a hard time getting along with anyone and is sort of catastrophically misreading the political moment, which I think are both really true. Well, then, Josh, how do you explain how she like methodically worked her way from city council to state, I think from state to state rep to state senate to house to senator I mean, that sounds like a pretty fucking canny politician who can do that. And I have a very difficult time reconciling uh, those two things. But but, you know, here we are. Yeah. Okay. so let's talk a little bit about voting before we move into some questions. So today there's going to be a vote on the Freedom to Vote Act, which is kind of the newest iteration of the For the People Act, which has been tweaked, edited pared down to get Joe Manchin on board. So they introduced it. They basically gave it to Manchin and said, go forth and good luck, because he thinks that there are 10 Republicans out there who will vote for it. And the co-sponsors helped him. It was, you know, they attended meetings as well. It was, you know, a good faith effort, I'd say. Um, And now we've come to the point where today is the first vote. This, This wouldn't be the final vote on the legislation. It'd be the vote to move it to debate to to consider it. Um, and there's really very little drama around it because it's 100% going to be filibustered by Republicans. And uh, I checked in with Senator Tim Kaine yesterday, who's one of the co-sponsors, and he told me he'd be very surprised if they get just one Republican to vote to overcome the filibuster. So in that way, not a lot of drama, right? It's going to be pretty much the same thing we've seen with every voting bill so far. However, this is the one that's supposed to kind of be now the one, the one that when this vote fails, when no Republicans help overcome the filibuster, despite, you know, weeks of courting them in individual meetings and stuff. Um, and despite what Kane told me, Democrats even offered Republicans kind of a little procedural sweetener. They said, we'll let you do unlimited amendments on this bill if you help us move it to debate, which gives, you know, that's got to be attractive to the Ted Cruz's of the party who like unlimited floor time to bloviate. So anyway, this is supposed to be the big turning point where after this vote fails, Democrats regroup. And I mean, there's no other avenue but the filibuster, right? They they go to Manchin and Cinema, say, we, kind of, we tried it your way. Republicans are never going to play ball on voting protections. Now we got to talk about this. And, you know, Kane told me yesterday, they are unequivocally against abolishing the filibuster, but basically there might be some room to move them on reform or a carve out or something. And it's just, it's so hard for me to tell what's real and what's, what else are you going to say? You know, he can't say this vote's going to fail and then we're not going to be able to move them on the filibuster. And that's it for our voting rights effort. We're just going to throw in the towel there, you know? It, it is very, um, <laughs> if, if, if there is no movement and it's, 
pretty hard. I mean, it's almost impossible for me to imagine there's going to be movement because, you know, have you had has any have you had your eyes open all year? Um, then it's what's what's the point? What you know, and 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 it it's clear that in the dynamics of how the filibuster works and just our polarized moment, a bunch of test votes that fail, the idea that's building up pressure on anybody is obviously just absurd. We know that's not true. Um, and it's always important in politics to you can't make a mockery of yourself. You can't make yourself ridiculous. And when you keep going through these motions and Republicans just say no, and you sort of self-womp a bit, you're kind of making yourself absurd. And so I, I hope that's not what they're doing, but it yeah. sure seems like it. Yeah. I mean, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe this is Manchin like pulling off, you know, opening up his Superman, you know, <laughs> business suit, you know, kind of like Democratic partisan man. Do you remember when Trump wanted to do that when he got out of the hospital? That report that it was his idea to have a Superman shirt on underneath a button down and to like hobble out looking really frail and then like stand up to full stature and pull back the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was actually Superman, not like Trump man. It was actually no, I that think was he wanted the, it. I don't think he wanted to be. You know, Superman. it's it's funny. He's he's such a ridiculous person, but he does have a sense of show. <laughs> I almost wish he would have done it, just because that it would have be been a, so stupid. <laughs> it would well, it would have been both stupid and kind of awesome at the same time. Yeah, just in some absurd way that that you know. Remember, I'm a I'm a I'm a white guy in his fifties. I'm halfway <laughs> to being a Trumper as it is. Okay, anyway. so let's do some questions. Um, right. The first is from Kim, who says it distresses me that you don't mention the idiocy of voting for Republicans if Dems don't pass the big bill. Reason being, it's not a policy issue; it's a numbers issue. The solution is to have more Democrats in order in office, not less. The solution is to vote Democratic because their bill is liked. Um, I, I mean, I think. Kim is definitely right. I, the problem is that we only have 50 Democrats to get this through. It's not like if we had a few more Republicans, this legislation would be moving. I think that's totally right. But I also think the tendency is for voters to vote out the party with which they're displeased not to give them another bite at the apple. Yeah. And and, and I mean, yeah, I was a little I was a little confused by the question because, I mean, Kate, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, I, I, Kate and I are pretty clear about where, you know, what our opinions are on, on, on these questions. Um, but the key point is it, it's, it's really never a matter that people who are gung-ho to get this bill passed are going to be disappointed and then vote for Republicans. Right. It's that people who are gung-ho will 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 not vote in in quite the same percentages as they might otherwise have and that's sort of floating five six seven percent of the electorate who is not committed to this bill but also not necessarily opposed to this bill and sees politics through a very different prism than we do which is much more okay can people come in get things done they can there's some action they 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 can follow through in that case, it's it's more this kind of like, oh, Democrats couldn't get it done. I'm going to get hand it over to Republicans. It's just we we have to be aware that that uh, 
people with strong political opinions and strong ideological commitments just see politics very differently than other, you know, than than other uh, slices of the electorate. Right. Yeah, that's the key. It's not people, you know, like Kim or people who listen to our podcast who are like super clued into what's going on. It's going to be people who take in a stray headline here and there and all they're absorbing is Democrats are in charge and nothing's getting done. Oh, and I apologize, Kim. I, I, when I was looking at the, uh, the, the your question here, Kate is the one who dropped it into our kind of like blogging chat. So it said Kate at the top. So I called you Kate. My apologies, Kim. <laughs> okay. And now we'll take a question from Carl who said, it looks like Trump is fighting two congressional subpoenas relating to Steve Bannon and the National Archives. I can't see courts giving anything to Steve Bannon, but I worry about a case involving the National Archives to be a drawn out affair. Should Biden get those records over to Congress regardless of any court delay or ruling? My other concern is a SCOTUS ruling in favor of Trump, but limiting the ruling to Trump like Bush v. Gore. Well, on this one, I if, if I were president, I would be using, you know, they have, there's that line in, in law, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. The president runs the executive branch. National archives are semi-independent, but constitutionally the president is in charge. And there is a lot that a president, if they wanted to, could sort of lean into that possession is nine tenths of law and do things kind of what you're suggesting. That's not in Joe Biden's DNA. That's just not. Um, and that's just the reality, I think. And that's also not more, more worrisomely, it's not in Merrick Garland's DNA. Um, I'm worried that other things are not in his DNA either. Um, I think the the big issue here, I have seen very few people who think that even this corrupted Supreme Court would give Trump any really friendly rulings here. Because the, 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 I mean, I put nothing past those guys, but the, the law, the constitution and their broader ideological commitments about the power of the presidency push so much in the opposite direction that, and, and, and the idea that they're going to do a sort of a one-off, you know, for Trump, but, but it won't apply for the future. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, the, the real danger here is, is that, it, that it's drawn out. And that does worry me a lot. And I think what what is going to be important is that a sitting president and separately for different reasons, a sitting attorney general can go to the courts and say, look, I speak for the United States. You need to go fast here. You need to you need to give us a decision. We need to process this. And so I think that is really the lever that these guys have. Obviously, if, if, if a majority on the court just decides to, to pr- protect Trump no matter what, there's not a lot you can do about that. But I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's delay that's the danger. Yeah. I was going to say, that's what I'm concerned about because I think court type stuff takes forever anyway, just in normal life. And um, you know, I know that some people have legislation specifically to kind of speed up presidential privilege type cases because they are important and kind of pressing, especially as the January 6th committee is trying to, you know, they have a a timeline. They're trying to do it all in a way that, you know, is politically advantageous to the most people in charge. And we have midterms coming up and everything like that. Um, Yeah. But I would say similar to your point, delay is 
is my concern because I think you get to a point where things are so drawn out and so kind of behind closed doors, like a lot of the committee stuff has been so far that people just totally zone out and forget about it. And it's a congressional committee. So it's not like the, you know, the hottest topic to begin with. And then every month that passes is a month we kind of get further from January 6th. And I think it feels less scary and less urgent and less you know, sure to be repeated. And so I think when that pressure kind of dissipates over time is it's just bad for everyone involved. And I, I think the key, the key thing, and one, one of my great disappointments is I, I saw a number of law professors over the last couple of weeks, basically write things up and say, well, you know, it's, it's really open and shut. Trump has no, you know, no, no, nothing to stand on. Um, but he'll be able to bottle it up and pass the point of next election, and then Republicans will disband the committee and he'll get off the hook. And and, and a kind of a ho-hum, like, oh, well. We have to look at this from the vantage point of, have we created or allowed to come into existence a system under which the Republic cannot investigate or act against forces that try to overthrow it by force? And what those sort of you know, kind of fancy law professor types are saying is basically, yeah, you have something as, you know, back during like Iran Contra, you have all these things. Well, president has war powers and he can do this abroad and all this kind of stuff. You have a mob led by the president storm the Capitol. I mean, this is really, this is really pretty, pretty straightforward stuff. And are we really saying that kind of like that the president can just you know, former president can just bottle that up in court. That is, that is something that the sort of the fate of the whole country turns on. Because if there's, you know, preaching to the choir here, I'm sure, if no one's punished for this, the kind of the big people who actually kind of did the big things, not the kind of the 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 the, the foot soldiers who are, you know, they're not even getting punished very much. They're kind of, you know, some of them are getting suspended sentences for three months and stuff like that. There have to be consequences for something that is so grave in the in the in the life of 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 the republic and and again I do think it is going to require the attorney general and in a different way the president to sort of sound in and say I'm not hands off here I speak for the I speak for the United States this is important you got to move quickly here because this is a, a a grave issue and I even it's funny I I even I'm a little curious because there was that thing that happened a few days ago where Joe Biden basically said, yeah, I think they should be prosecuted if they're not, you know, if, if, if they're not complying with the subpoenas. And the DOJ rushed out a, you know, uh, uh, Garland's sort of press secretary rushed out a statement. We're totally independent. We're not going to be, we don't take dictation from anybody. It, this is where people sort of lose the plot. Yes, we shouldn't have the president uh, going to the attorney general and saying, hey, I don't like that guy. Go find a crime to, to charge him with or lay off my friends. But the president is president. He speaks for the whole country. He is He's the one who has the constitutional responsibility of upholding the law. So it's not interference for him to say something like that, that is of, of, of such gravity. So I, I, I have my concerns about how Merrick Garland sees these issues and whether he is in his own way another one of those kind of fancy law professor types who you know lose the forest for the trees we'll see all right 
So uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Later. All right. Bye. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 